0: Welcome to the best of Making Sense. This is Sam Harris. In this series, we re-air some of the most popular episodes of the Making Sense podcast. These are conversations that we think you'll find just as relevant today as when they were originally released. Today, I'm going to be speaking with Paul Bloom. Paul is the Brooks and Suzanne Reagan Professor of Psychology and Cognitive Science at Yale University. He's published more than a hundred scientific articles in journals such as Science and Nature. He's the editor of BBS, Behavioral and Brain Sciences, which is a great journal. And he often publishes in the popular press, in the New York Times, the New Yorker, the Atlantic Monthly, etc. He's won numerous awards, and he has a book, Just Babies, The Origins of Good and Evil, which I highly recommend. And without any more fine print, I now give you Paul Bloom. Well, I now have Paul Bloom on the line, notorious Yale psychologist. Hey, Paul, how you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast.
1: Notorious, huh?
0: Yes. Notorious for um, attacking empathy of late, which has been a surprise to, to many people. I, I want to get into that. But before we do, I, I want to just back up and introduce you to listeners who may not be totally familiar with your work. What have you focused on and what are you focusing on these days? before we get into your your recent controversial views on empathy.
1: So I've worked on a range of different issues in my uh, research career. I sort of have a bit of an academic uh, deficit disorder with regard to my research focus. So i worked on language learning, um, religious belief, pleasure, and most of all, over the last several years, morality. So I completed a book, Just Babies, on the origins of morality. And recently I've become interested in, uh, in, uh, norm, more normative questions of how we could be moral people. We can make the best moral judgments and do the best moral actions. So this brought me to look at, at debates over the, the relative merits and our capacity for reason, uh, issues about compassion and care, and in particular, issues about empathy. So, um, my next book, which is still being written is going to be a, a critique of empathy. It's tentatively called Against Empathy. And I've written some articles exploring that. So that's sort of a natural offshoot of my broader interest in moral cognition.
0: Well, that's a great title. So I think we'll want to get into the larger question of scientific understanding of morality as well, because as you know, that's an area of interest of mine. And I think it's an area where we don't totally agree, if, if I'm not mistaken. So that that could be interesting. But You've spent a lot of time doing, I guess, what would be called uh, developmental psychology. I'm wondering, you're a parent, I'm wondering if if your understanding of the human mind in those terms has affected your parenting. Is there anything in science that has affected the way you operate in the world in that domain?
1: Almost nothing. I mean, my my kids now are teenagers, Um, ones off to university, and, and reflecting on it, None of my interactions, nothing I've done with them, has been <laughs> influenced by either my own research or everything I've known about psychology. The reason for the almost is I feel my psychological training has given me, uh, I think, healthy skepticism about what psychologists have to say about child rearing. Right. So, so you know, you, you have you have kids, and, and you know, there's so many choice points. Um, you know, separate sleeping in a separate bed, sleeping with you. What sort of punishment? What sort of discipline? A range of problems, and psychologists weigh in enthusiastically on all of them. And and uh, being a psychologist myself, I know, for the most part, we don't know what we're talking about. And, and, and for the most part, kids are pretty resilient. So, you know, if you love your kid, if you don't do anything grotesquely wrong, your kid will turn out the way your kid turns out.
0: Let's back up there. Wait, what do you make of that fact that science has not informed your life in that respect? Because I, I share your incorrigibility or or disregard of science, and and it's although it's not the result of being especially close to those particular data, is it really just that you feel like we don't know anything of substance that's actionable for a parent, or is it just that it's it's too hard to bring that kind of understanding online when you're in the trenches being a parent? How do you explain the fact that you wind up parenting more or less exactly the way you would parent if you were a non-scientist?
1: Yeah, I think it's, it's uh, parents are intensely interested in the data and very willing to act upon it. I think, I think too willing to act upon it, too willing to, to take psychologists seriously. I think the problem is your option one, which is we just don't know much about development or what makes people happy or healthy. I, I don't want to exaggerate it. Uh, certain things around the edges, we do know. Um, there's some, I think, useful narrow techniques for helping your kid get to sleep and, and dealing with certain crises. Certainly, you know uh, issues about about food and allergies, and and we we have some interesting tidbits and local facts that are useful. But the broader question everybody wants to know, which is how do I raise my kid to be a good, happy, successful, healthy kid, we just don't know, and it's not for lack of trying. I, I you know, in, in general, I'm I'm very enthusiastic about my field, and I've written popular books trying to. Extend the insights from my field to broader questions that interest a lot of people like, you know wh- wh- How does pleasure work or or why do people have religious belief? But I'll confess that for many of the most important domains of our lives We've come up with very very little
0: mm. and is that just a, a Larger statement about how hard it is to understand the human mind in truly scientific terms
1: Yeah, I think I think psychology has turned out to be a much more difficult field than physics or chemistry are the harder sciences. I, I, don't, I don't think we're, you know, I don't think psychologists are stupider than physicists or chemists. I just think the problems have turned out to be more difficult. I, I, I think to some extent we're in a pre-Copernican phase in psychology. Mm. Um, we're, we're waiting to turn into a, a full-fledged science. And, you know, the, the, the problem I think is most urgent for domains like health and happiness and success. Over more specific, narrow problems like, um, visual perception or motor control or short-term memory. There, the science gets done.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: But, you know, Jerry Fodor had something, his first law of cognitive science. This isn't quite it, but my memory of it was the more intuitively interesting something is, the less we know about it. So, so there's a form of sticker shock. You know, I, I teach intro psych. And people coming in want to know questions like, you know, why are some people mentally ill? What could I do to be happier? Why do people change their minds about things? And what I tell them is the best science we have, which is on problems like color vision right. and, you know, and, 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 you know, amnesia, long term memory, and, and language processing. We, we know the most about what intuitively matters the least. I'm not sure whether this is some sort of you know, savage law of the universe or just reflects the fact that the problems that we're most interested in are just the hardest to resolve.
0: Well, I, th- I think there is a savage law of the universe in a related sense. that actually may connect with Fodor's law, which is that we have obviously not been designed by evolution to understand our circumstance in any deep sense. Our common sense intuitions about how things work are applicable within the domain of hurling rocks in parabolic arcs at one another and moving at the speed at which apes move. So when you get down to the very small in physics or the very large in cosmology, our intuitions are obviously at odds with what we're discovering to be true. And I think... That may be true with the brain. It's certainly true with the significance of information processing, or even the fact that information processing is a thing that can be studied. And so, our, our intuitions about what is interesting also is part of that picture. I was having a, a conversation with the physicist Max Tegmark recently, and who's done some very interesting work in cosmology, among other areas. And we were talking about this, and he made this point which is a kind of a stronger version of, of a point that I just made, which I thought was interesting because he, he said that it's, it's not only not surprising that what we find to be true violates our intuitions, it should be expected. If we take evolution seriously, that our cognitive toolkit has evolved for a certain domain and has not at all been constrained by the way reality is altogether, we should expect the truth to be deeply counterintuitive, and we should be distrustful of explanations that mesh well with our common sense. And I, I think that is probably true across the board. It probably it doesn't just apply to things like quantum mechanics and cosmology, but it may apply to areas much closer to your area of interest. For instance, normative solutions to moral problems. We have not evolved to function well in a group of 7 billion people trying to run a global economy and solve civilizational problems. We have evolved in small bands of hunter-gatherers and are, are tuned to the, the social challenges we encounter in those circumstances. So this may be a bridge from where we just were to talk about things like empathy and morality, but I, I just want to get your reaction to that.
1: Right. I, I think the point is exactly right. And the highlights both the similarities and the differences. Uh, between psychology and a field like physics. So, so in both cases, we have these bedrock foundational intuitions that have evolved through natural selection. We, for physics, it's middle-sized objects that you know, move in certain ways. For, uh, for psychology, it's people, beliefs, and desires. And so, so the question is, how come we made so much success in physics, where we have quantum theory, we have cosmology, we, we understand a very big and a very small, and not the equivalent success in psychology. And one answer could be what we're talking about before, the problems in psychology are simply, in some way, harder. Uh, another issue, though, is something which has been raised by the evolutionary psychologist Lita Cosmides, which is that our, our intuitions might blind us in certain ways that make psychology hard to do. So we have what she calls instinct blindness, which is the sense which is that if something is psychologically natural, it seems to sort of not need explanation and doesn't benefit from, from explanation. Mm. You know, if if you take take something very simple, which we can explain, which is why people love their children, and, you know, that's evolution 101. Uh, People have evolved to love their children for a sort of standard functional reason, and we could talk about where in the brain this capacity is, we talk about what triggers it and what doesn't trigger it, but my experience is if you say these things, which I think is a, a rather trivial and fairly obvious example, people find it almost repellent. And so, you know, a lot, of, a lot of psychology, I think, runs against the problem that people don't want to hear it. It doesn't seem right. Well, it seems to sort of violate certain sacred intuitions that we might have.
0: Let's linger on that point for a second, because that, that is a difference, obviously, between psychology and physics. So what, what's going on there? Do you think it's just when you say that, uh, when you give any kind of, quote, reductive explanation for something like love? Do you think the, the message that people draw is that they, they don't really love their children or that love isn't really important or
1: what's happening there? I think there's two things that might be independent or might be connected. One is they don't think this needs an explanation. Um, I, I, I see this in many realms. People, you, you know, you, you, you tell, I tell people, well, I study why, certain thing, why people think uh, killing is wrong.
0: And they look at me and
1: say, well, duh, of course uh, killing is wrong. There
0: is a waste of taxpayer dollars. <laughs>
1: exactly. And you say, you say you're a professor. And, you know, and, and I used to say, you know, I study, you know, why do people enjoy orgasm and chocolate? And people laugh um, because it's obvious. Of course we do. And it needs tremendous. Um, you need to be. I, I think William James talked about it, said you need to be an almost depraved person to Want to explain these things to go beyond a common sense intuition. So, so problem one is that people, it takes a lot of work to get people to understand that these are contingent facts. If we were wired up differently, if, if evolution were differently, we would want to eat our children, mm-hmm. uh, not love them. We, you know, we would have sex with trees and not people. Mm-hmm. And, and so you have to explain how things worked out. So that's one problem. And, and I think the second problem really is I think people find it almost morally repellent to dig in to these questions, particularly for moral questions. And actually, particularly for a question I think which has occupied you a lot more than has occupied me, and you you contribute a lot to this, which is when it comes to spiritual or religious matters. Mm -hmm. Um, If you tell people you're interested in why people uh, believe in God or believe in an afterlife, they immediately run to the inference that you're attacking these beliefs and that there's something wrong with the enterprise.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, so I, I interrupted you there with the inhomogeneity or the, the, the lack of analogy between uh, psychology and physics. So apart from the, the, the bad vibe that people get when you start explaining prominent features of the human mind, there's this sense that not only is it wrong or, or somehow unsavory to reduce these cherished mental states to something biological, there's a sense that it's just it's superfluous. You don't; these things don't have to be explained. I guess some people do have this attitude toward things like gravity, but it's, it's in terms of our living, we we don't feel like we need to explain it. But right. there's no real resistance to the enterprise of physics when you think about an open-ended search for explanation.
1: That's right. So, so for whatever reason, um, obvious physical facts don't don't meet with the same objection. You know, I, I think. Maybe throughout history, at some point, when somebody says, I'm interested in why things fall to the ground rather than fly into the air, other people laughed and said, it's obvious, you know, why would you question such a thing? But we don't do that now. We understand these are good questions. And more to the point that there aren't typically the moral implications for it. Nobody feels threatened if you say you're studying gravity or, uh, you know, or energy or mass. Well, if you say you're studying love or religion or morality, it it it, you know, it gets people scarred up. I mean, maybe there's a case to be made that it should get people scarred up. Maybe a lot of society runs on certain things not being questioned and not being challenged, and uh, and the influence of people like you and me is not necessarily a positive one.
0: Well, it, it does. I guess it gets people's guard up because it at least implicitly carries the message that things are not as they seem, and that That's true across all of science, but when you're told that things are not as they seem with respect to gravity or the way diseases spread or uh, anything else that science might tackle outside the human mind, you're not delivering the same kind of insult. Whereas if you say things are not as they seem with things like interpersonal love or parental love or spiritual experience, you are often explicitly but at least implicitly saying that The reasons why you think you're doing something, the reason why you think this is so important to you, you love your kids, you love your wife is not at all what is really pulling the levers of your mind. There's another explanation entirely that doesn't even treat these nouns necessarily at all. Now we're talking about genes, or we're talking about neurotransmitters, or we're talking about something that you that's not e- even available to your own inspection subjectively. If you continue the conversation long enough, I don't think that becomes deflationary in the way that people fear, but if you don't continue it long enough, You're left giving people the impression that love is nothing but a certain balance of neurotransmitters. And therefore, that's right. It's you're you're just a bag of chemicals. Get over yourself. Yeah,
1: I I think that's right. I like the word insult because that's often how it's taken. I mean, I've I've been as I'm writing a part of my book that's looking at political psychology uh, as part of a sort of a separate question about whether liberals and uh, conservatives differ in their empathy. And one thing I've noticed in political psychology is, you know, political psychologists lean to a tremendous extent liberal. Mm. This is a point that John Hyten's colleagues wrote up in, in, in an article. And, you know, it, it's true of academics in general, uh, but certainly it's true for political psychology. And one effect that this has is that there's endless detailed explanations of why conservatives believe what they do. You know, so what's going on when they reject affirmative action or they don't like the president's health care plan? But there's extremely little reflection on why liberals believe what they do. Now, even if you think the liberal cause is the right one, you know, for just about every question, still, it's an empirical question how we come, how liberals come to the beliefs that they do.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But it's considered as either a superfluous question or a taboo one. You know, liberals, if you're liberal, you think liberals believe what they do because, um, they, they, um, they, it's the right answer. And, right. and you don't want to reduce it down to experience or, you know, God forbid random arbitrary social experience. And of course, the same thing comes up with, uh, religion, which is that, you know, religious people often get very offended by, um, studies of why, uh, people are religious. Well, they find studies of why people are atheists fascinating, and often they raise it as a challenge. Why don't you go study atheists? And in fact, I think, you know, we should study atheists, and there's some work on atheists. And my experience is when you talk about atheists under research on why are atheists, often they get their, you know, hackles up. No, nobody wants their cherished beliefs to be put under the microscope by somebody like me. Not even me.
0: What you've done with empathy is, is even more seditious than that, I think, because it's not just that you are proposing that we study a necessary and, and cherished emotion you're actually challenging the the common sense view of it as being uh, socially and psychologically beneficial and vital to our moral lives you've come down very much on the really a, a side of a controversy that most people didn't even know existed which is that empathy in many cases is harmful and is n- not a good piece of software if you want to be a, a reliable moral actor in, in normative terms. So tell me about w- what you've said about empathy, and let's, let's get into the details.
1: So I always have to begin with the most boring way ever to begin anything, which is we're talking about terminology, because people use the term empathy in all sorts of ways. And I think my position is easily misunderstood. Mm. If you think, some people think empathy just is a word referring to anything good compassion, care, love, morality, making the world a better place, and so on. Under that construal of empathy, I have nothing against it. I'm not a monster. I mean, I want to make the world a better place. Other people use the term empathy very narrowly to refer to understanding in a cold-blooded way what's going on in the minds of other people, understanding what they think and what they feel. And I'm not against that too, though, and we might want to talk about this. I think it's morally neutral. I think very great and wonderful and kind people have this sort of cognitive empathy, if you want to call it that. Mm-hmm. But so do con men, seducers, and sadists. Right. Um, they're, you know, bu- bullies are one way. Reason why bullies are very good at being bullies is that they exquisitely understand what's going on in the heads of their victims.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's often misunderstood. By the way, we, we should just footnote that that this form of cognitive empathy that you've just distinguished from the other form that you're about to describe is something that psychopaths have in spades. When we talk about psychopaths being devoid of empathy, it's not the empathy that allows us to understand another person's experience. That is not something that prototypically evil people lack. In fact, they, as you just said, they use this understanding to be as successfully evil as they can be.
1: That's exactly right. So, so um, you know, another term for cognitive empathy is social intelligence. And I like that way of talking because it captures the point that intelligence is an extraordinary tool. Without it, you know, we couldn't do any great things. Mm. But in the hands of somebody with malevolent ends, intelligence could be used to make them a lot worse. And I think that, that's, that social intelligence is exactly like that. Um, mind reading, another term for it, is is a tool that could be used any way you want it. And the very best people in the world have have tons of it. And so do the very worst people in the world. So so the the sense of empathy I'm I'm, I'm using and that this actually matches what most psychologists and most philosophers uh how how they use the term is empathy is in the sense of what Adam Smith and David Hume and other philosophers call sympathy and what it refers to is feeling what other people feel so if you're in pain and I feel empathy for you I will feel to some degree your pain if you're humiliated, I will feel your humiliation. If you are happy, I will feel your happiness. And you can see why people are such fans of this. It, it, it brings me closer to you. It dissolves the boundaries between me and you. And there's a lot of psychological research showing that if I feel empathy towards you, I'm more likely to help you. Dan Batson has done some wonderful studies on them, and I don't contest that at all. But the problem with empathy, I and mean, one of the problems of empathy, there are many. But the main problem is... It serves as a spotlight. It zooms me in on a person in the here and now. And as a result, it's biased, it's parochial, it's um, short sighted, and it's enumerate. Uh, be- one way I put it is it's because of empathy that governments and societies care so much more about a little girl stuck in a well than about millions or more people suffering and dying through climate change. Mm. It's because of empathy. At least in part, that we we freak out and panic over um, mass shootings, which, however horrible, are a tiny proportion of gun homicides in America. I mean, it, so if you ask people, they would say mass shootings are the most terrible things there are. And I, you know, I live in Connecticut. Newtown's not that far away. After the Sandy Hook killing, people were, including me, were deeply upset. But intellectually. If you could snap your fingers and make all the mass shootings go away forever, and then you did that, nobody would know based on the homicide numbers. Yeah. The, 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 it's so tiny. So it misdirects us. It, it causes us to focus on the wrong thing. It causes us to freak out at the suffering of one and ignore the suffering of a hundred. And um, in in one of your books, I forget which one, you uh, you you talk about the study where uh, we care more about one than about eight. Yeah. And most, you say something to the effect of if also, there's ever a non That's Paul Slovic's work. That's right. That's right. Um, some wonderful studies. And also uh some named Ritoff and other investigators have done this since. Hmm. And you know, and and, and you described as if there's ever a non normative finding in psychology, that's it. And so I, I think we could I think there's many more examples like this that we could say we could look and say and, and say as rational people. Well, you know, a black life matters as much as a white life. The life of an ugly person who doesn't uh, inspire my empathy matters just as much as a beautiful person who does. And the lives of a hundred matter more than the life of one.
0: Especially, and this, this is the, the amazingly non-normative finding from Slovak's work, is that especially if those hundred include the one you were caring about. So I mean, you can set up this paradigm where you show a reliable loss of concern when you add people to the group. So you start with one little girl whose story is very emotionally salient and people care about her to a maximal degree, and then you add her brother to the story and people care a little less, and then you add eight more people to the story, keeping the same girl and people's care just drops off a cliff. That's truly amazing. It's not one attractive girl versus 100 faceless people, it can be the one attractive girl along with the 100 and you care less.
1: It, it's a magnificent and horrible finding. And, and you know, I, I've, I've long championed the forces of reason and rationality and moral judgment, I think, far more than many social psychologists that were capable of that. And so there, there's an interesting duality here. On the one hand, our gut feelings push us towards the one girl and not the 100, even if the 100 includes the girl. Mm. On the other hand, we're smart enough to recognize, when we put it in this abstract way, that that's a moral mistake. In some way, you could view the moral mistakes caused by empathy as analogous to the mistakes in rationality that people like Danny Kahneman have chronicled,
2: mm-hmm.
1: where where you see people just, you know, you get these puzzles, and you ignore the base rates, and you get things all messed up. And then when it, when you step back and look at it and do the math, you realize, wow, that was a mistake. My gut led me in the wrong way. visual illusions are another case. It looks this way, but it isn't. You take out the ruler and you measure it. And although the lines look like they're different lengths, they're the same. So we have this additional capacity to do this, both for things that connect to the external world like vision, but also for morality, where we have standards of reason and consistency. And we could use this to say, wow, our empathy is pushing us in the wrong direction.
0: Yeah. So now, do you see us correcting for this in a way that is adequate to the, the magnitude of the moral error? Or is, is our way of correcting for it more haphazard
1: than that? Uh, our way of correcting this is always haphazard. But the analogy I make is with racism. So, so we know we have racist biases. Many of us have explicit racist biases, but there's a lot of evidence for implicit racial biases, uh, biases that we don't know we have even, but that influence us in all sorts of ways. So what do you do? So suppose if you think racism is okay, then there's not a problem. But suppose, you know, as you and I do, we think racism is wrong, so what do you do about it? Well, the answer is not you try harder. You know, we, we know trying hard doesn't work for these sort of biases, but there are different sorts of fixes. So in fact, for, for, for biases, often there's technological fixes. One story, this may be apocryphal, but it's, it's a good story, is that symphony orchestras were heavily biased in favor of men. Because they, 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 claimed that, you know, the people making judgments who were both men and women said men just sound better. They have stronger, more powerful styles. So what they did was they started auditioning people behind a screen. Mm-hmm. And this is, and then, then the, and then the sex ratio became more normal. So this is an example of you, you got a bias. You don't like it. And so you try to fix the world so it doesn't apply. And I can imagine similar things hap- happening with, with empathy where you change laws and policies so that empathy plays less of a role. I'll give you one small example. I think victim statements are a horrible idea,
2: hmm.
1: where, people, where people come into court and describe in great detail their anguish and their pain, and, and this plays some role in sentencing. And that seems you know hugely immoral because the extent to which you're gonna be affected by the witness statements depends on how much they cry and whether they have the same color skin as you, and whether they're attractive and whether they they are stoic or weepy or whatever, and then this will then influence how many years in prison somebody has. Yeah, and you know, and it seems it seems it, it, it seems bizarrely, intentionally, structurally irrational and immoral.
0: Yeah, I've actually never thought about that before. I, I think you're absolutely right there. I, I'm wondering if the argument in favor of witness statements relates to the debt owed to the the victims and their families, and that there's there's some sense that we owe this to them, the opportunity to to vent and express their grievance this way, and that a judge and, and a court would be reluctant to deny that to them. Is that what makes this such a common feature of these kinds of trials?
1: Yeah, I think that's what the argument for it is. And, you know, if, if it would make the victims happier, feel that they, they're getting what they deserve to make their statements, it's an excellent case for it. But it seems to go too far to have these statements influencing the influence the sentencing. I mean, this isn't necessarily a a bleeding heart argument. It it could be could go both ways. I mean, if the victim statements seem are done by people who don't inspire your empathy, yeah. If a white jury is listening to victim statements by black people, they might say this isn't capturing my empathy. This isn't upsetting me. Let's give the guy a light sentence. So I you know I I don't have any sort of view as to whether the sentences in, in these sort of cases are 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 too harsh, are too lenient. It's just that the victim statements put no, puts noise and issues of incredible bias including racial bias and and makes that part of the sentencing process. So that's an easy fix to, to to get rid of things like that.
0: I've often said that I think our laws and social institutions need to engineer our better judgment and our understanding of moral normativity and inoculate us against our failures of intuition. And even when our, we can summon the appropriate intuitions, we can't always summon them reliably, or it takes work to summon them. And what we want are laws that are wiser than we are. We want to be able to rely on a system that corrects for what at the end of the day we recognize to be a kind of, you know, a suite of moral illusions or moral biases that are leading us to, to misallocate both emotional and very real resources.
1: I think that's exactly right. Um, you know, there's a phrase by, by Lincoln that uh, Steve Pinker made as the title of his wonderful book, The Better Angels of Our Nature. And I think that, that you know, those better angels, first and foremost, is deliberative, careful, analytic cost-benefit reasoning on how to make the world a better place, and laws and policies should work to instill them. You know, under under some analyses, that's what something like a constitution is, which is, uh, you know, a constitution is at a very higher level saying, look, you might get really excited and want to have a law that says you could re-elect a popular third president or reinstill slavery or ban some ugly political doctrine you don't like, but you can't. We're going to block this. And you could undo the block, but it's going to be very difficult and take a very long period of time. Constitutions, under this view, are the sort of equivalent of waiting periods mm-hmm. to buy a gun or get married. which mm-hmm. Just they slow you down. They make it harder. And by making it harder, it, it's, you know, Danny Kahneman talks about thinking fast and slow. And thinking slow, I think, is a lot better. And I, I think good social institutions reflect, as you put it, the the workings of thinking slow and often encourage us to think slow.
0: But it's interesting because it, it, you can often think slow in areas that are taboo, and I think it's it's no less important to to venture into those areas, given that so much human suffering often hinges on what one thinks. But it seems to me that in questioning the value of the moral value of empathy in its kind of emotional contagion form, you have trespassed on a, on a taboo there. And tell me a little bit about how the conversation has gone in public. I noticed that there, there was a little bit of pushback recently in a New York Times op-ed, and uh, you had that Target article in, in the Boston Review that I sent in a piece for. What, what, what has it been like to make the noises you've made recently about empathy?
1: It, it has not been a popular, popular argument. Um, some of the objections turn on a misunderstanding. So some people say, I'm outraged at what you're saying. I have a lot of evidence that empathy is good and doesn't suffer from the problems that you say it suffers from. And then they go on to defend compassion, for mm-hmm. instance. And, and I'm very careful in my book and in my work to distinguish empathy from compassion. And, mm-hmm. you know, we should bookmark this because it, it connects to meditative practices, actually,
2: mm-hmm. in, a, in an
1: interesting way. The, the good arguments I've heard against empathy, the ones that have made me scratch my head, is that... Um, Empathy might be useful or central for intimate relationships. So, when it comes to relationships between, say, us and our children and our friends, you are supposed to be biased and parochial and not, you know, not impartial. And so, a defender of empathy might say that somebody who had zero empathy might be a fine policymaker, uh, a, a fine moral judge, but a lousy. Husband or, or wife or father or mother. I don't think that's true. I, I think if you look at it closely, it's not even here, it's not empathy that we're looking for, but understanding and caring. But those are the arguments that, that most give me pause. And in fact, I'm, I'm, um, I'm, I'm kind of on, I'm certainly a consequentialist and I'm on most days a utilitarian, but I'm struggled with, and we've talked about this before, I've struggled with the question of, The obligation we have towards those we're close to like our children Mm. and to strangers and and i'm not you know i haven't been persuaded by people like peter singer who says in the long run there should be no difference
0: right right well that's a very rich area to talk about i'd like to go there but i don't want to miss this point let's deal first with this distinction between empathy and compassion how do you separate those
1: so i actually got thinking about this through a chance meeting with uh, matthew ricard Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know, Matthew. I, I would think that you would. Um, you guys have a lot of affinity. Um, so I met him at a conference and, you know, he was wearing these saffron robes and had a beatific smile and radiated peace. And I was me. And <laughs> I, I came up to him and started talking to I him. Mean, we ended up getting a cup of coffee and he asked me what I was up to. And, and I was quite nervous because I, I, I'm not a confrontational guy. And I figured this is not a, it's like telling, you know, a rabbi you're writing a book in favor of pork, mm-hmm. you know, to tell this guy that I was against empathy. But to my surprise, he I said, yeah, that's kind of, that's standard Buddhist teaching. And, and he pointed out that Buddhists make a distinction between what's called sometimes called sentimental compassion, which is what I've been calling empathy, which is feeling other people's pain, getting into their head and great compassion, which is more distance. And yeah. he's done this wonderful research program with this neuroscientist, uh, Tanya, Tanya Singer, where they carefully work explicitly to distinguish empathy from compassion. They get people in, in fMRI machines to, to, to do meditative practices that are either empathic or compassion. They look at what, how expert meditators do, what, what more normal people do. And the moral of all of this, which connects to other psychological research, including the work of Richard Davidson, actually, who's done some wonderful work on this,
2: mm-hmm.
1: is that empathy burns you out. It burns you out, it saddens you, it makes you less effective. What you should do instead is you should feel compassion, what the Buddhists call loving kindness. Um, you should feel positive and cheerful. If you're dealing with somebody who is miserable and ashamed and in pain, you don't feel miserable, ashamed, and in pain. You feel cheerful, positive, full of love and energy. Mm. So, you, so you care extraordinarily deeply about them, but you don't feel their pain. And I think once you once you make this, I don't care what you call it, I mean, I don't. In the end, you know, the the issue isn't over what you call empathy or whether you should keep empathy under any definition. It's about what kind of intellectual and sentimental attitudes we should have towards people. And I think the attitude that they call compassion is far better than the attitude that they call empathy.
0: As you say, it's a clear recognition of the suffering. There's nothing about your attention that is distracting you from the reality of the other person's suffering, but it's not diminishing your own well-being. In the presence of that suffering, what you're feeling is a real commitment to alleviating it. That's different than simply being also miserable in the presence of human misery.
1: That's exactly right. And you don't have to be a a monk to appreciate this. I think people often have a failure of moral imagination where they'll say, well, you're not going to do anything nice if you don't have empathy. But think about all the things we do. Think about giving to charity and helping out a friend and you know giving advice and 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 you know volunteering saving to take a standard philosophical example saving a girl's life who's drowning. In none of these cases do you have to put yourself in their shoes. Mm-hmm. What you have to do is care about them.
2: Right.
1: So so you know if presumably if I pass a girl drowning in shallow water as I walk by I would rush in and pull her out.
0: I'm not a monster. Head high water, I think you would go in there.
1: Well, Singer's example, uh, Peter Singer's example, sets the bar very low. Yes. It's, just, <laughs> it's extremely it's extremely shallow water. The I'm shallow wearing, pond is a yeah. really nice it's a shallow pond, but I'm really wearing nice shoes yeah. <laughs> and you know and then wearing They costs like 50 bucks. For me, that's nice shoes. I go If I go in, I'll ruin my shoes. But I'll go in nonetheless. and Singer's point goes on to say that. Uh, You recognize that, that a life is worth far more than $50. And then Singer goes on to make the point, well, then when you spend $50 buying, you know, a a meal or or a night out at a bar, you're doing a moral equivalent to murdering a child. Hmm. So put that aside. But I would, I would drift into the pond, shallow or deep, rescue the girl. But plainly, I don't have to put myself in her shoes. I don't have to feel what it's like to be drowning. I don't have to imagine the sorrows of her parents learning that their beloved daughter had died. That's ridiculous. I rather, I notice she's drowning. I say, God, it's really it would be horrible for this person to die. I get to save her, and I save her. And and I'm not special here. Most of the kind things we do have nothing to do with empathy. Just as a lot of the very bad things we do are motivated by empathy.
0: Let's get to that. That's very interesting. So the dark side of empathy. But before we get there, we should also point out that compassion is also very rewarding it's not emotionally neutral you you can imagine the the experience of saving someone who's drowning would be a very rewarding experience especially if you succeeded in in saving this person and from a for, certainly from the buddhist point of view from a meditative point of view the feeling compassion uh, and there are practices that just focus on this mental state and, and get it tuned up without engaging with any specific suffering per se but just contemplating the suffering of others throughout the world and feeling this very heightened sense of wanting to alleviate it, this becomes an incredibly pleasant mental state. I mean, it's simply what love feels like in the presence of suffering. To explain this a little bit more, the Buddhists uh, have these mental states that they focus on often in concentration practice and One of them is is metta, loving-kindness. The other is compassion. But um, metta, loving-kindness, is an incredibly pleasant mental state. When you are focused on it with any concentration, you are just overwhelmed with feelings of love. And compassion is what that is like in the presence of suffering. Based on this feeling of love for those close to you and even those who you have never met, just a commitment to the, the happiness of, of other sentient beings. Compassion is how that is in the presence of their suffering. And and it just is a, a very rewarding experience. So it's not at all what we experience as the contagious quality of human misery, where you're with someone who's depressed and you feel depressed. You you witness someone's sadness and you feel merely sad. But it actually does, to take the, if you take the, this Buddhist experience and methodology seriously, it does actually connect with the point that Singer makes that with which you're not entirely sold, which is, it's not morally normative or even emotionally normative to privilege your family members over strangers in any deep sense, that you want love that is, is truly universalizable. And uh, I, I share your, I, mean, I wouldn't really call it skepticism in my case, but I, I certainly share your reluctance to accept that operationally in, in my life. You know, I, I'm not living as though I aspired to love everyone just as much as I love my own kids. But do I read that re- as a moral failing. Well, I do. I, I, I view it as an experiential failing because I know what it's like to feel that. I've taken MDMA. I've done extensive meditation retreats where I've experienced these states of consciousness. And I actually know that there is something lost when you particularize your source of joy and connection in the way that we are conditioned to. So, I mean, I experience incredible love playing with my daughters now. And I experience it there. And I don't experience it when I just bump into a stranger on the street. And that difference, in in most states of consciousness, that difference seems appropriate and even morally normative. I wouldn't want to, if you ask me, if you ask part of me this question, I, I wouldn't want to care just as much about the stranger on in the street as my daughters, and I wouldn't want to take as much joy in his presence as in theirs, because that would seem to somehow deflate the significance of my relationship to my daughters, but... I actually know what it's like to have a, a more encyclopedic sense of of one's moral and, and emotional connection to sentient beings in general. And that's certainly what someone like Matthew Ricard is going for, and that's what he's espousing as, as a truly normative way of being in the world. And it's an experience that one can have, and it's an experience that when one loses it and is then left in the in the far more normal mode of really loving those one knows well and cares about something certainly has been lost and when one is experiencing the, these states of consciousness it's not like one loves one's children less it's not like there's there's something lost in in that domain it's just that you realize that love really is not transactional or personal in any important sense it is a it's a state of consciousness is a state of being that you can inhabit to one or another degree and in our normal mode we only tend to get glimpses of it when we're the, with those we really fully care about have good reason to care about have had a history of positive experiences with and expect more and we drop our guard more in those moments than in others but it's possible to just you know th- truly throw open the gates to that state of mind and doing that, you wouldn't see any good reason to relinquish it if you could effortlessly stay in that place.
1: Well, I think there would be one good reason. I mean, I, I've, I'll confess I've never had anything close to that sort of experience. When, um, For me, having kids was one of the great surprises of my life. And the intensity of feelings I've had towards my sons was at least sort of, you know, in, in, its, in its nature, different from towards anybody else. And, and I've, you know, the, the feeling carries great risks. There's a uh, Having children is, is a, a tumultuous enterprise. Mm. But I've never felt anything like that towards, towards a stranger. And, and I think the feeling itself, I agree, may well be very positive. Matthew Ricard tells the story of how he was a subject in one of Tanya Singer's experiments. And he was asked to feel empathy in my sense towards uh suffering people while having his his brain scanned and afterwards he said look i gotta go back into the magnet and you gotta give me some time to feel meta loving kindness because i feel like shit. this is awful and um and so sure and then he's and then he described this was bliss it is so transcendently different to love people than to feel what they feel Mm. so so I don't question the potency, the experiential potency of what you're describing. But the reason why I'm not sure you should say yes to this, and in some way you, you have said something similar, is that in the real world, our time and resources are zero sum. If I loved my children and my wife the same as I love anonymous strangers, then I'd have no motivation to spend so much time with them or help them out with projects that, although important to them, are far less important than the lives of other people. But I don't want to be that way. I want to be the kind of person who actually spends time with my kids and with my wife and doesn't treat them the same as other people.
0: But isn't that preference based on this bias in the first place? Isn't it? Yes. Is, is there's a circular piece of reasoning there where it's because you feel this bias toward them and you would, part of you would be scandalized not to feel it. You would be a worse father and a worse husband by, by definition. Therefore, you are committed to feeling it.
1: If you go off basic moral first principles, as somebody like Peter Singer does,
0: there is no grounding
1: for for my preference. There's In the end, it just comes back to the fact that it's the consequence of Darwinian evolution fiddling my feelings one way or another. And if I buy into the sort of most abstract moral principles, I should not feel this way. I should love everybody equally and and devote my energies to where they do the most. Well, all I could say is there's sort of a doctrine in moral philosophy, I think it's from Kant, which is that um, ought implies can. Mm. That in order to say you should do something, you have to be capable of it. And maybe there are exceptions. Maybe there are exceptions like the Dalai Lama and Matthew Ricard and others who don't have any preferences in the way we're talking about. But I'll note that both the Dalai Lama and Matthew Ricard are single.
2: Yeah, they don't have kids. kids. yeah. yeah
1: and And so, so, can there be people who would still count as humans who have no special love for their kids, no special love for their husbands and wives and and yet you know live in families and and raise kids? I'm not certain it's possible,
0: but we should be more explicit about what we're talking about there because there there are two versions of that normalization function. One is you could could imagine a society of Spock-like people who don't have special love for anyone. They don't feel much of anything, but they have a very, very wise calculus for mitigating human suffering. Or you could have what I'm talking about, which is just more love, right? So you have all the love you have for your kids, but you have so much more love that it doesn't stay confined to those relationships, right? So you leave your kids and you walk into the Starbucks and you love everyone in the Starbucks, too. Then the question is, what kind of person do you become in that circumstance? And are you, because of the zero-sum commitments of time and energy that you just talked about, are you, for some reason, a less competent parent? Or could you just put in place some Spock-like mechanisms to be just as competent, and also live the the ideal of love that that someone like the Dalai Lama or or Matthew Ricard is talking about.
1: So that's what I'm skeptical about. I'll I'll grant uh, that love might be infinite in the sense you're talking about. So the world I envision or that I question the possibility of is one where you have infinite love. And then, of course, this love motivates your actions, but it's a zero-sum world, so your time and your money and your attention are limited. And yet you could still be a good spouse and a good friend and a good parent. If you could show me an exemplar of somebody who does this, I would be more persuaded that it's possible.
0: Well, it's, I, I, can, I can certainly show you the mental state, I mean, given the right perturbations of your nervous system. You can have this experience where you recognize that love can overflow its banks and therefore is not in principle confined to them and and that and you can also if you're like me and millions of people who've had this experience you would feel that this was not some aberration but it's in some sense more true than what you tend to experience it's been a very long time since i've done psychedelics of any kind so it's these are now distant memories but what was so interesting about coming down from various drug trips was the intuitions one got during that period of coming down where one is no longer experiencing the world as one was a moment ago. And there, there are just many gradations of change, you know, back from that state into into one's normal waking consciousness. And uh, in certain experiences, you are just giving up what seem to be just frank distortions of one's perception and and emotion, and that's you're sort of, you're you're becoming more normal and more normative and more like oneself. But in others, there's a very clear sense of losing something that is in fact more true. I mean, losing your purchase on a way of being and a way a way of responding to other people that is more true, more n- normative, more, in fact, who you are in your best moments and in your d- kind of deepest experience. What you can feel are, are the the, the, f- the forces of obscuration. You, f- you feel that you're being kind of recontaminated by your ordinary psychology, your neurosis, your hang-ups, your f- hopes and fears, all the stuff that was held in abeyance for whatever reason. In this case, you know pharmacology, and the experiences in meditation are not quite like this because you you don't quite come down in the same way. You didn't have you 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 achieve these states of consciousness far more gr- gradually and with a lot of work, and the loss of them is less perceptible. But I guess I, well, what I'm saying is that it's possible to know something about the mind, you know, subjectively by going back and forth over this terrain and. I think we have a a very deep bias, an understandable bias, that anything experienced in a specific and unstable condition like a drug trip or a a focused period of meditation is somehow less informative of your mind and your life, says less about you, and is probably less informative about what is normative than what you stably experience throughout your life. But I don't think that's, I think that's true in certain cases, but I, don't, I certainly don't think that's true across the board. I think there are experiences we can have, again, by many different modes. Drugs is just the, the easiest for, for untalented people in this area, and it offers by no means a guarantee of, of kind of hitting the right experience. But we can have brief experiences which are analogous to suddenly being a much better athlete than you have tended to be. You know, so we've gotten you in the lab, we've gi- given you the right drugs. And then we put you out on the basketball court or, you know, put a, you know, a, a pole vault in your hands and suddenly you're going to do something over the next 10 minutes that you really weren't going to do otherwise and you're performing at a very high level and then you'll lose it, right? You lose it and you're not, for whatever reason, you're not going to get back to it. But what you, what you would take away from that experience is that certain things are possible for you as well as for others and that those things are actually better. And you you regret not being able to inhabit that state all the time, and I, and I, I think there are, there are certainly experiences one can have that um, seem to to meet those criteria.
1: So I, I find that all extraordinary. I mean, I, I've, I've read you talk about this in in wake in your book, Waking Up, and and a lot of it is moving, and I think convincing, and got me interested in trying it right now. <laughs> right now, my my drug of choice is whiskey and. Mm-hmm. And it's nowhere near as, as interesting as you describe it, the effects. Um, and so I've nothing, I, I, I agree with everything you're saying. And I agree also with the personal and, and you know, experiential importance of those, significance of those events. So that's not where my worry lies. My worry lies, I could just put it kind of bluntly, which is, I'm not sure what sort of parent one would be if one didn't love their children more than they loved other people. When it comes to actual actions and behaviors and so on. Now, somebody like somebody who's a a committed utilitarian might say, well, you know, everybody's life matters equally, but it's a very efficient system for people to care for their children uh, and spend special time with their children and not with strangers' children. It's just more efficient. You know, if you try to feed a kid in Africa as opposed to feed your own infant uh, daughter, it's very inefficient. You should focus on your daughter, the Africans will focus on Africans, and fine. So in some way, a utilitarian could capture the sort of seemingly parochial biases that we have towards, towards our children, but I don't think that's sufficient. I think in order to get up in the middle of the night and, and, and help your kid after your kid's been sick, or you know, drive an absurdly long distance to take your son to a climbing competition, personal experience, mm-hmm. um, you have to love your kid. Share, you know, if you love everybody, it will occur to you that there's other people who need you more. And, and it will, and, and you, you will feel you you won't have the proper motivation. I even think this is true for friendship. I mean, if I would, I, I couldn't imagine having as a friend somebody who didn't, at some level, care more for me than about other people. Because in some sense, what would make them friends otherwise?
0: Right. Well, but presumably you would be in favor of, again, designing systems and, and social institutions that were blind to, these, to, to the importance of these particular relationships. The example I use is that we, you know, we all want hospitals that just take people based on some rational, unbiased view of medical triage and doesn't, doesn't take my daughter just because she happens to be my daughter in front of somebody else's daughter we don't want uh, hospitals that are that are super sensitive to something like those witness statements where just because i can complain louder and my daughter happens to be prettier than the other daughters she gets medical care that others need more so given your commitment to that kind of fairness it suggests to me that something like what you just described as implausible could in fact be more plausible what could be normative is some bias toward those we know well and those who are biologically close to or just situationally close to, you know, adoptive children, etc. But that the bias is could be relaxed much more than it is in, in our case. Just imagine loving your kids exactly as much as you do. Nothing changes there, but I double the amount of affection you have for everyone else in the world. So your, your set point of, of care and concern... For others gets raised a hundred percent. Does that worry you? And and if you could imagine playing with that dial, wouldn't you imagine wanting to nudge it up to some degree, but I mean to the very limit at which you began to notice some less than normative effects in your personal life?
1: So so two things. I mean, these are are terrific issues you raise. And these are these are sort of pushing at the hardest, uh, the weakest parts of my anti empathy. Uh, movement, which is issues of family. So the, the first one is I would argue for some distinction between public and private. I think most people would. Most people acknowledge that, you know, in the evening, I can choose to spend my time with my kids and not with other people's kids. Mm. But when I'm at work and I'm searching for a lab manager or chairing a search for an assistant professor, I'm not allowed to hire my son because I love him. Mm. And in fact, I would approve as you would of mechanisms in place blocking me from evaluating, you know, people in my family. And, and I could say, well, you know, I love my son more, but I understand that, I, that in this realm, I have to be fair. And I don't want to push this too hard. I think the distinction between private and public is very porous. Yeah. And, you know, and when it comes to my own money, I say, well, it's my own money. But, but, you know, certainly people who are dying and would benefit from my money and my time. You know would object to my sort of prissy distinction that this is private it's it's i think it's a hard distinction to to make clear as for the dial yeah i would turn it but i recognize there's a cost the cost is that i would devote proportionally less care less time less attention less money to those i love because although you know let's assume love is not zero sum still by turning up the dial of affection towards strangers, um, they become closer to the level I have towards you know my son, my wife, my friends, and so now if I was sort of if before it was a difficult case whether to spend time with my sick child or volunteer for people who really need me, this will now sway it more towards the volunteering and away from my family. And look, it, in the end, I agree with I I, I agree with the point that. One of the great problems with humanity is we care too damn much for those close to us and nowhere near enough for people far away.
2: Mm.
1: So, so I would turn that dial. But I would also argue that, that one way to do so is not necessarily by turning the, the dial uh, on sentiments, but rather establishing some principles and some moral principles. Um, there's a wonder, I mentioned Steve Pinker's book before, and there's a wonderful section where he says, You know, the Old Testament uh, says, love thy neighbor. The New Testament says, love thy enemy. And then Steve says, look, honestly, I don't love either one of them. Mm -hmm. I don't really love my neighbor. I don't really love my enemy in any sense. He does not have meta. He's like me. But he says, I recognize you're not supposed to kill them. I recognize that they have rights. I recognize they're people just like I am. Their lives matter as much as me. That there are some cases where I'm morally obliged to help them. And I think that that's where moral progress comes in. I don't think in this world of mortals, um, we really do kind of expand our love. Rather, I think we we develop sort of reasoned understanding of rights and equality and impartial processes. And I have a feeling that's what makes us better people.
2: Mm.
0: Yes. I mean, most of the time we don't love our neighbors. And we might not even like our neighbors because we have some, you know, neighbor dispute. We, you know, we don't like what color they paint their fence or whatever. But then there's some natural disaster, and we're all in a, you know, a hurricane together. And all of a sudden, the floodgates of neighborly affection and solidarity open. And that's a that's a very common experience people have.
1: I think there are a lot of cases like that. I also think, though, that there are cases where the floodgates never open, and yet we behave in a moral way. So here's something which every professor experiences, which is, you know, I, I have to give grades for students in seminars. And in reality, you know, some students you really like. You're just, you just get along with them. They seem like nice people. Others kind of less so. And for a seminar, you have huge amount of control to give grades. You give, you give whatever grades you want, and it's participation, and it's how you grade the final paper. But I try scrupulously, as, you know, I know many people do, not to let my personal affections make my decision because I think that I have a broader moral responsibility to grade fairly. And this is a, you know, this is a tiny example mm-hmm. of something of little significance to me, but it shows how our behavior could be could be mandated by by sort of broader commitments that abstract away from personal affections. So my story is less nice than yours, because I don't end up filled with love for all of them. This hasn't brought me together with them. I still like the ones I like and don't like the ones I don't like.
0: You're tamping down your affection for the ones you like in the act of grading. So it's to grade exactly. better. Ex-
1: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's right. That's, that's beautiful.
0: Uh, office hours with a psychopath. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> Thanks,
1: Adam, uh, for, as, as a blur. Uh, so, so, to next book.
0: That seems to open to the, the dark side of, of empathy that you hinted at a few minutes ago so what is the dark side of empathy and i could imagine giving good grades to the people who you most like to have a beer with would be an example of it if not the darkest
1: right so so i I talk a lot about the biases that empathy pushes us towards um you know it favors the same race it favors one over a 100 and so on and one response i get which is you know legitimate is well fine empathy isn't perfect but you know, you're going to give to charity, maybe empathy directs you in a strange way, maybe it's kind of short-sighted, but it doesn't do any real harm. But I think there's all sorts of cases where it does terrible harm. So I'll give two types of examples. One type of example is where empathy drives short-term behavior that has long-term bad consequences. There was a very nice article in Slate pointing out that if you give money to child beggars in, in Africa and India, for the most part, you're supporting a huge criminal organization that, you know, enslaves and sometimes maims children. Mm. Your money money is making the world worse. And and so, you know, I was was talking to somebody on the radio about this, and I gave her that example. And she said to me, and it really surprised me. It dumbfounded me, actually. I didn't know what to say in response. She says, but I like giving to children. I feel good about it. I feel connected to them. And, you know, I said, oh, okay. And then I thought, you know, like two days later, a response came to my mind, which is, it depends what you want. If you want to feel good, if you want to feel an empathic connection, a real warm glow, go ahead and give to the children. If you want to improve your life, do something else, like give to Oxfam. So it could misdirect us. I mean, another example along the same vein is Linda Holman talks about um, interviewing warlords responsible for horrific atrocities. Mm. And at one point she asked them, why do you chop off children's arms? Why in the world do you do that? And the answer she got was, we do it for you. We do it because those sort of atrocities energize Western interests who set up NGOs in our country. And we make money off NGOs. We They pay us a tax. We want your attention and you give it to us. And so we, you know to go on what he would say if he was talking in the language I talk is we exploit your, your empathy to make the world worse. So those are, those are specific cases. There, there's a more general thing, which has actually interested me and motivated some experimental work, which has to do with atrocities like uh, lynchings of blacks in the American South or, or the Holocaust in Europe, where when a lot of people talk about atrocities, they talk in terms of uh, dehumanization and hate and, and outgroup derogation, all of that play a role. But there's another thing which plays a role. And this, like most intelligent thing was first pointed out by Adam Smith, mm. which is often we're energized by, um, by the suffering of innocence. We, we see someone as harmed and this motivates us to strike at those who's harming him. And so, um, in, in the case of the blacks in the South, stories were told about white women who were assaulted. Uh, the Jews were said to prey upon uh, innocent german children for every war that a democratic country has ever gotten into what a typical thing to boost energy and interest in a war is to talk about the victims the innocent victims of the people you want to strike back against mm. the the those who um, saddam hussein and his monstrous children you know tortured and killed those who um, who assad killed with, with chemical warfare if we ever get into a full scale attack on isis no doubt you know, newspapers and magazines and and blogs to be filled with stories of the atrocities committed by ISIS. Now, these are actually good arguments for intervention. The suffering of people is a good reason to intervene and make the suffering go away. But empathy, I think, unbalances the scale. We no longer have a cold-blooded cost-benefit analysis asking how can we make the world better, but rather we say, oh my God, this child was murdered by these horrible people, let's have a ground invasion. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it, it sets us up in irrational ways. So the research program, this is done with a, a, a wonderful graduate student, uh, Nick Stagnaro. What we did was we did this uh, on MTurk, on a survey population. We first measured their empathy on a standard empathy scale. So, you know, everybody gives their empathy number, how, how empathic they are. Then we told them about an atrocity.
0: If our listeners needed to ballpark their level of empathy, what signs should they look for in their lives apart from crying at gala wine commercials
1: so so one one problem is that the empathy scales are horrible they test empathy in the sense that i'm talking about but often they measure for compassion social adroitness understanding and all sorts of things um however if you cannot resist uh simon baron cohen has an empathizing quotient mm. uh which you could just find online test yourself uh There's another one by uh, Davis, very popular one also find it online. And, uh, you know, you'll be asked about questions. Some of the questions are kind of don't seem to connect to much of anything. Like, do you cry at movies? But some are real empathy questions. You know, I, um, I get embarrassed and find it unbearable to watch other people become embarrassed. That's a good empathy question. Um, I can't watch somebody in pain. You know, I, I, uh, I, if someone's laughing, I'll start laughing too.
0: What about not being able to watch Olympic ice skating or the balance beam?
1: You you are high empathy. I mean, <laughs> if you're watching balance beams and you find yourself standing up and kind of teetering on a coffee table, you're you're going you're you're going for it. Actually, my kids would watch. Um, I think kids are more vulnerable to this uh, than adults because kids don't have any frontal lobes, so um, they can't shut down these things. So you know, I remember watching Kung Fu movies with my kids. And during the whole movie, they're running around a room screaming and doing kung fu moves yeah. because they're just in empathic engagement. So you can take these empathy tests online. Um, it turns out, and then we ask people uh, how they would respond to an atrocity. And we give them a, a scale, you know, zero, do nothing. You know, two, in, in a foreign policy case, you know, two, economic sanctions. Four, airstrikes. Seven, full-blown ground invasion. The more empathic people are, the more they want those people to suffer. The more they want the people who have harmed the victim they're feeling empathic for to suffer.
0: Conversely, I think they would also be more susceptible to the argument on the other side, for instance, you know, evidence of collateral damage and its significance is going to move their calculus more than if they were less empathic.
1: I think you're right. I think somebody right. who's high empathy will be pushed around by whatever somebody sticks up on CNN or Fox. Yeah. I mean, you 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 if you if you tell them about, you know, Abu Ghraib and show them pictures and everything, they'll feel this immense repugnance towards the war. And if you tell them about, you know, who our enemies are attacking and they'll be all in favor of the war.
2: Hmm.
1: They're they're it does so. Empathy doesn't make them particularly be, either belligerent nor pacifistic. It just makes them be swayed wherever somebody wants to push them. I'll just add one more thing about the empathy scale. So a lot of people think, wow, you're talking about policy and abstractions, but aren't more empathic people nicer? And aren't low empathy people terrible? And this is such, you know, I just have to address this in this conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, people have done the studies and it doesn't seem to be true. A couple of years ago, this huge meta-analysis came out, which is meta-analysis combining, you know, dozens, I think hundreds of studies. In this case, that looked at the relationship between how empathic you are and your propensity for aggression, physical aggression, uh, verbal aggression, and sexual aggression. The correlation was virtually zero. This means if you want to know how aggressive somebody is and you have 100 tests to give them, I wouldn't even bother giving them an empathy test. Right. The second fact involves psychopaths. So there's a psychopath scale, and your, uh, your listeners could go online, easily type in, CARE, H-A-R-E, psychopath scale, and boom, they could see whether or not they're a psychopath. And one of the items on it is lack of empathy. And they have related ones, lack of empathy, lack of emotional affect. And then people have studied, well, you know, this is what makes a psychopath, but which aspects of the scale matter? So there's been big scale studies looking at how you score on the scale on different questions and whether or not you're likely to go to prison, whether or not you'd like to go back to prison once you've been released. It turns out that the empathy scale predicts nothing. It is part and parcel of being a psychopath to be low in empathy in my sense, that's true. But it seems to bear no causal relationship to the bad behavior the psychopaths are engaged in. Do you want to guess what sort of items do predict bad behavior?
0: I would imagine narcissism and being high on the other kind of empathy would predict some of the worst behavior to me. I mean, being able to be having a very good understanding of people and an ability to manipulate them.
1: You might be right. And actually, all of the... The the psychopath test does not test any of the positive things. It's it's all a bunch of of ugly traits run together. But so the two things that predict the first one is kind of is, is too obvious to imagine uh, that you probably wouldn't even think it's on a scale. But it's it's past bad behavior. Right. So so the best predict, but but here's the more interesting ones the measures that tap lack of self control. Yeah. Impulsivity. Yeah. uh, You know. Uh, you know promiscuity. Lack of commitment to relationships, lack of commitment to a job. You know, find somebody with lack of self control. And, you know, to me, the best predictor of how somebody will turn out is probably the marshmallow test. You know, whether they can hold back on eating one in order to get two in the future. Psychopaths who are the worst psychopaths would fail a marshmallow test. They just can't, can't stop themselves. So the point being that empathy could be systematically related to certain things, including certain bad things. But there, there's just no evidence for the common claim that good people are high empathy and bad people are low empathy.
0: So let's say we accepted the punchline here, which is empathy in this second sense. Again, we're not we're we're distinguishing it from the cognitive appraisal of of somebody's experience or a theory of mind or mind sight or whatever else you want to call it, but this feeling what other people feel. This we agree this is at the very least, too much of a good thing. But the question is, in what sense is it a good thing? And if we could get our hands on the knob here and dial it down so as to be more normative, moral actors, what a value would be lost? What do you think, as you tune this down and you become more you know, Spock-like in your, not to make it sound pejorative, but more just more Scrupulously rational in the way you decide all of these the the way you triage moral problems in this world What would you expect you would lose in terms of your emotional life?
1: So i'll take the question as What would you lose if you just dial down empathy? So I wouldn't want to dial compassion and care and love right? Um, I think those you know for, for obvious reasons. Um, I think you'd lose something The philosopher michael sloat who strongly disagrees with me on this, um has a wonderful example, which is, there's a father whose daughter likes stamp collecting. Now, it's one thing if he says, oh, I'm proud of you and encourages her, but it's even better, Sloat points out, if he shares her enthusiasm. Sometimes from the people we care for, we want empathy. Mm
2: -hmm. We want
1: them to feel what we feel. If, if, If my wife is angry at somebody for some reason, it's one thing if I say, oh, I, I agree with you, you're right, it was a horrible thing, but she might want me to be angry, too. Maybe I should be angry, too, just because she's angry and because I love her and I'm connected to her. If you dial on empathy, that sort of thing, you'd lose. And then, of course, there's more to life than morality. So empathy is the source of so many pleasures. I think it, it's core to the pleasures of fiction, for instance, hmm. where part of the pleasure of, of an action movie is becoming an action hero. Part of the pleasures of, of a drama or novel is, is becoming, you know, Anna Karenina or, or, or what have you to put yourself in a person's shoes and feel what they feel. Uh, Anna Karenina, you know, Walter White, Tony Soprano, mm. uh,
2: this huge
1: pleasure. I think empathy is, is, is integral to the pleasures of certain sports where, you know, you've written on a, on a martial arts. And I think particularly for the grappling arts, If you're engaged with feeling what the other person feels, that just makes things so much more interesting. And I think it's probably central to the pleasures of sex. Do you think
0: any one of those cases dissects out the component of empathy perfectly? I guess of the ones you ran through, it seems to me that the pleasures of fiction, especially something like film, hits the bullseye, at least intuitively for me. So if you're watching a movie... And you're totally caught up in it, and the pains and pleasures you see on the screen become your pains and pleasures to the ultimate degree. Is that a pure case of empathy playing the the strings of of your experience? and if if you dial down empathy, would you come away from even the best film feeling? Well, it's just, there was just a light on a wall and, you know, I, I know they're all actors and nothing really was happening and nobody died. And so I, it's, I could spend my two hours differently and with greater pleasure.
1: So that's the case that interests me the most. I think that there are, there are many reasons to enjoy a film. And so it, it may not be quite that bad. Somebody, a human, which had empathy excised, might enjoy movies in very different ways. But, but there's certain sorts of fictional pleasures that involve a character that you're supposed to empathize with. You're supposed to feel his or her suffering and, and, and strive to achieve his or her goals. Um, this is, I think, you know, the great pleasure of following a character like Walter White, mm. the star of Breaking Bad. Right. Um, and it made it morally interesting because he was in some way a, a, a hideous character. And, um, and many of the fans, I think, got so caught up in empathy that they sort of cheered him on oblivious to his horribleness or or take um you know my my favorite book is you know lolita yeah you know what Nabokov does is yeah know, it it, five pages in against everything you believe to be right you're rooting for humbert humbert yeah to achieve his sexual conquest of his nymphette you're cheering for him because you are him and i think that sort of stuff is exhilarating i wouldn't want to live without it
0: yeah, well, I, I do view films in particular, I guess t- television as well, as a kind of super stimulus. It's a very unusual social occasion, and one for which we really have not been prepared by evolution, because you, you, we're making uh, very often eye contact. At the very least, we're able to observe the facial expressions and sustain changes in, in emotion of people. Without being implicated in the situation ourselves, we can't be observed. So we can give ourselves over totally to mere observation of human behavior and extremes of emotion without ever fearing that we will be suddenly held accountable for our position there. And so it's, it's like the ultimate circumstance of emotional contagion.
1: Yes. I think you're right. I mean, one one example of this I've got to interject is Colin McGinn has a great book on film, and he talks about the close-up. Mm-hmm. And if you think about the close-up, you're you're staring full into somebody's face, and if it's in a movie theater, it's magnified enormously, and you're never that close to somebody unless you're fighting them or having sex with them. Yeah. You know, and and yet there you are pressed up against their face, and they don't see you. And it's this exceedingly powerful form of voyeurism that you could never get in real life.
2: Mm.
1: And then another example is, in, in in sometimes in film for voiceovers, but certainly in novels, you get to, to hear what people are thinking. Talk about a super stimulus.
2: Yeah.
1: I've, I've often wondered what it must be like for a child reading a, kind of a real book for the first time and then being told, well, she thinks it's time to go. And he, and and the kid reading is saying, "My God, they're telling me what another person is thinking."
2: Mm.
1: I've had to infer this up to now. Yeah. yeah. And so, so you know, if I I love the topic. If somebody held a gun to my head and demanded to know what I'd be working on after empathy, it would be exactly this: the pleasures of fiction.
0: Oh, interesting. That would be great. Now, my uh, powers of empathy, uh, in particular, uh, the possible state of your own bladder, is making me uh, want to bring this to a close. But I just I, I have one. I don't think I had really thought about it in these terms until now but some total of everything you and I have said in in this conversation has made me think that what we what would be normative is to be able to move among these various states and various levels of empathic engagement with others wisely based on some overall normative conception of what is going to maximize our well-being and you know, you, you can get really into the, the stamp collecting as a kind of almost meditative attainment of empathy uh, in the midst of the trivial, right? So you can decide to find your son's stamp collecting mania uh, emotionally contagious for the time in which you're involved. Then you can step away from it, and, and it all becomes like a game. It's like when we play games, we, we have decided arbitrarily to care about something that really has no intrinsic value. And we can really get caught up in it, caught up in it to a degree that it could it can become incredibly captivating, but then we step away from it and, not, and it's meaningless thereafter. And I, I notice people uh, must do this in the, the domain of, of dialing down empathy. So I'm, I'm thinking of, of the case of a surgeon who, in order to function well as a surgeon, can't be bowled over by the emotions of his patients and, his, and their family. He has to care, obviously, about the well-being of his patients, but he can't care in a way that makes it harder to be a good surgeon. But presumably, he trims down his or her level of empathy in that situation in a way that he or she doesn't out in the world with interacting with maybe these same people in different circumstances and certainly with his own family. And so I'm, I'm wondering if that makes sense to you, if what we would want is kind of a fluid ability to just keep tweaking the dial of empathy so we can really we can go for it in the middle of a film and we can have it set more reasonably when we're talking about whether to, to vote for um, a presidential candidate who's going to get us into the next war.
1: I think that's exactly right. I think empathy is never a reliable source for moral judgment. You know, when deciding what to do, you should always turn it off. Mm. You know, leave compassion on and caring on. Turn off empathy while you're at it. Turn off disgust, you right. know, and, uh, I, I'm against, I'm more against disgust, but that's a lot less controversial. Um, leave compassion on cost benefit analysis, notions of rights. But, you know, life, life is more than sitting around making moral judgments and, and to be able to deploy empathy creatively at will, I think is, is, I think to some extent we can do it. We could choose to be empathic. We could turn it on. And I think that's, that's a useful human trait. And I would extend this more generally. There's, there's a lot of emotions where you'd want to have some top-down control over this. Your case of a surgeon is a good example. Um, for a doctor, for instance, sexual arousal, obviously, is a case which should not be initiated while examining people, Mm. but, but, but should be initiated in other contexts. For, uh, you know, an elementary school teacher, anger obviously should be, uh, suppressed, but, I mean, here's another discussion that would take us astray. I'm not as convinced as you that that anger is always a bad thing, and there may be times you want to deploy it.
0: Just to close the door on that misunderstanding, I, I don't think anger is always a bad thing. In fact, I think it can be very useful. I think hatred is a bad thing. I would distinguish those, but
1: fair enough. Fair yeah. enough. I, and and hatred, I'm not. You know, I won't defend hatred. Yes.
0: In, def- in defense of hatred, that can be your book after the, the pleasures of film.
1: Yeah, um, yeah. I, I, I got to tell you this, this is it, but I have a family member, that I won't name, who watches. He's, he's, you know, he's Jewish and and Zionist, and he watches um, Holocaust movies when he wants to get a little kick of anger to get <laughs> him going. Right. So, so, and we do that. You know, it's it's the it's the anger equivalent of somebody watching porn. Yeah or somebody watching a movie to make them cry. You know, we, you know, a, a, a full mature person will often try to tweak his or her emotions either directly through, you know, just through thinking or through an external stimulus. There, there's a scene at the end. I just saw the movie again, Marathon Man, a wonderful
2: mm-hmm. movie.
1: And Dustin Hoffman had his teeth pulled out by Lawrence Olivier to torture. And there's a point where he has to energize him, himself to, to kill some people and he was on this medicine that was did this thing to put on his teeth that made the pain go away it was blissful
2: right. and you
1: see him right before and he, he tosses away the anesthesia because he wants the pain and a lot of life is like that
0: i think it was uh, william goldman who wrote that screenplay
1: yeah yeah, he, I Big Goldman, he wrote the book yeah. Marathon Man. Right. And then I think he wrote a screenplay for the movie. I think he tells a
0: story about how he could never go into a dentist's office after that. He went, but he was just, he felt the, the anger of, of dentists and, and uh, their associates for what he had done to the, the entire discipline.
1: No friend to the dental profession. Right.
0: Well, listen, Paul. This has been a great conversation, and I think people will find it fascinating, uh, as I have. And uh, you are consistently one of the more interesting people to uh, listen to, and it's been great to get a chance to talk to you here.
1: Thank you so much, Sam. I should have said this at the outset, but um, but I'm delighted to be honest. I've you know I've been a fan of your podcast. I think I've listened to every one of them, and I've listened you know regular reader of your blog. So it's kind of cool to be on the inside now, you know, looking out.
0: We will definitely do this again if you're up for it, because I don't think we have gone near to exhausting our mutual areas of interest, and we didn't even, in fact, get to the core area of interest for me, is, is just how you and I may differ on questions of moral realism, and you know, we're over an hour and a half now, and we haven't gotten there. So,
1: I, I often think of the, there, there's a Freudian phrase, a narcissism of small differences, which is that you and I disagree, sorry, agree on 99% of the things. The one percent then becomes extremely important.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, someday we'll we'll fight about the one percent, and I think it'll it'll be fun. Before we go, Paul, just tell me uh, where people can find out more about you online and your Twitter handle and and all the relevant information in order to connect with more of your work.
1: I have a, an academic webpage. If you just Google my name, Paul Bloom, Yale, you'll get your my academic webpage that has uh, links to my papers, both popular articles and scientific articles. And you could follow me on twitter at uh, paul bloom at yale uh where i have about one percent of your twitter followers but i'm growing yes but the most important one (laughs) percent that's right it's the best of the best it's kind of a it's kind of a boutique twitter account i think
0: do follow paul on twitter because as you have just heard he is fascinating and a man of diverse interests so until next time paul i look forward to it hey thanks tons this is great yeah take care yeah take care